Good afternoon and welcome to the 99th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we'll talk about Hiroshima, Chernobyl, and COVID-19 in the nuclear age with Bernadette Vincent Vincent, Kate Brown, and Kyoko Sato. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests, future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, August 6, 2020, there are 18,895,712 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 18 million. 614,542 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 4,852,749 are in the United States. That's up from 4,793,950 yesterday. There are now a total of 159,407 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 157,400 16 reported yesterday again, another day with over a thousand, well over a thousand deaths reported. A little bit more information Ukraine has 77,169 reported cases from COVID 19 with 1,813 deaths, and Japan has reported 42,686 deaths, uh, excuse me, 42,686 cases with 1,028 deaths. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day. And in that uh, spirit, I'm gonna read a story about Hiroshima and COVID-19. This appeared in Japan Times, August 4th, headline, Sharing Hiroshima's Legacy in the Age of COVID-19 by Peter Chortas. As the world struggles with COVID-19, Hiroshima marks the 75th anniversary of the first atomic bombing in history, which leveled the city on August the 6th, 1945. The metropolis that arose from the ashes reimagined itself as a city of peace and began promoting peace and nuclear disarmament around the globe. However, while the coronavirus pandemic has put the brakes on inbound tourism, it has not slowed Hiroshima's anti-war efforts nearly as much as one might think. Coronavirus is a bad thing and a sad thing, but it also gives us new things, says Tomoko, executive director of ANT Hiroshima, a local group focused on peace building and peace education founded in 1989. ANT Hiroshima doubled down on online outreach as conferences and travel plans fell through. I'm a super analog woman, says Watanabe, but we now have the ANT Friends Instagram and I even tried YouTube, she said. Yet, as an official partner of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, ANT Hiroshima boasted numerous international outreach programs prior to the rise of COVID-19, most of which remain largely unaffected by the pandemic. 
For example, the group made a children's picture book, Paper Crane Journey, which tells the story of Sadako Sasaki, the young A-bomb survivor who folded more than 1,000 origami cranes as she succumbed to leukemia 10 years after the bombing. ANT Hiroshima has so far translated the book into 32 languages. Though available for sale, the group sends most copies to schools and youth organizations in war zones and disaster areas overseas. The group also sends seeds and samplings from A-bombed trees as peace offerings through its partner Green Legacy Hiroshima and posts A-bomb testimonies online, both activities which remain unfazed by the pandemic. The Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum has also shifted its strategy in response to COVID-19. Our doors closed completely from February 29th through May 3rd, explained Katsunobu Hamaoka, the deputy director of the museum, which first opened in 1955. So we made a YouTube channel and started uploading footage from our vast archive of A-bomb testimonies. The channel already boasts nearly 500 videos. The museum plans to add English subtitles to enhance international accessibility, but faces linguistic obstacles of a more domestic variety. Japanese sentences often don't include subjects, so it isn't always clear what's being spoken about, says Hamaoka. And in older recordings, many survivors use an old and very thick form of the Hiroshima dialect. So in those cases, we kind of have to translate them into Japanese first. As with ANT Hiroshima, the museum's international outreach efforts started long before the coronavirus reared its head. For the past 10 years, the museum has been offering live testimonies via video conferencing platforms. Sessions include 45-minute presentations by A-bomb storytellers with a 15-minute Q&A. If there's an interpreter, times become longer. Intended primarily for schools and peace groups, online testimonies through the Peace Memorial Museum require a minimum of 10 participants, though multiple households can register. Together, to meet the requirement, the application is available on the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum's website. Good to know. Meanwhile, organizations that focused on Hiroshima's immense pre-coronavirus ranks of overseas visitors have had to completely retool their activities. We have not been able to hold regular meetings, so we started using Zoom, says Reiko Inaba, treasurer for Hiroshima Interpreters for Peace, founded in 1984 to provide guided tours and translation services for activists, journalists, and other visitors to Hiroshima. But after COVID-19 flared up on the global stage, the group changed roles and now plans to live stream in English from the Peace Park for the 75th anniversary. Broadcasts will occur throughout the day with virtual tours of the Peace Park and testimonies from two A-bomb survivors. Inaba welcomes the change. Speaking only with visitors to Hiroshima, it becomes easy to feel like everyone knows the facts about atomic bombs, she says. We have to bring Hiroshima's message to people around the world who don't know what will really happen if someone uses a nuclear weapon. Watanabe also sees COVID-19 age as a catalyst for transformation, sees the COVID-19 age as a catalyst for transformation. We can get a lot of inspiration from the coronavirus situation on how to change our society, our economy, and our relationships with one another, she says. The whole planet faces the same situation, not only with the pandemic, but also with climate change and nuclear war. Yet she fears that people often forget the latter of these threats. It fades from their minds, Watanabe says. So how can we raise global consciousness of nuclear war? That is our mission as citizens of Hiroshima. Okay, I am thrilled to introduce my guests for a yes. conversation that I have really looking, been looking forward to. Let me introduce them one by one. 
Bernadette Binson Vincent is a historian of science and a professor emeritus at the University of Paris Pantheon Sorbonne. She considers the study of the history of science to be essential for understanding scientific research as a multidimensional endeavor embedded in a cultural context with societal and cultural impacts. She's published more than a dozen books and 80 articles and essays. She focuses particularly on the histories of chemistry and material science in 1993. She published The History of Chemistry with Isabel Stengers, for which they received the uh, prize Jean Rostand. It was translated into English in 1996. In 1997, she received the Dexter Award for her work on the history of science, and she has many other accomplishments. We're only uh, giving very short biographies today in the interest of time. Let me introduce my second guest, Kate Brown, who's Professor of Science, Technology, and Society at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She's the author of several prize-winning histories, including Plutopia, Nuclear Families, Atomic Cities, and the Great Soviet and American Plutonium Disasters, which appeared in 2013. Her latest book, Manual for Survival, A Chernobyl Guide to the Future, appeared on Norton by Norton in 2019. It's translated into nine languages and a finalist for the 2020 National Book Critics Circle Award, Pushkin House Award, and the Rizard Kapuscinski Award for Literary Reportage. The third guest, Kyoko Sato, is Associate Director of the Program in Science, Technology, and Society at Stanford University. She studies the politics and history of the nuclear technology in Japan and the United States and is currently co-editor, also with Bernadette and Soraya Budia, of Living in a Nuclear World from Fukushima to Hiroshima. She is also part of a multinational STS project on COVID-19 that comparatively examines the configurations of and relationships among expertise, policy and public response in 13 countries. She received her PhD in sociology from Princeton. Born and raised in Tokyo, Kyoko worked as a reporter for the Japan Times, an English language daily in Tokyo before starting her academic career. Kyoko, Bernadette and Kate, thank you so much for making time and welcome to COVID Calls. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. So I'll begin the way I've started all the calls, and I'll ask Bernadette, I'll ask you first to find out where are you calling in from and what is the COVID-19 situation there right now? Uh, I'm calling from France. I am now in the south of France, along the Mediterranean, and uh, enjoying summertime and vacations. And uh, I must say that most French people are not really uh, quite relaxed about COVID now, right now. And there is a fear that uh, a second wave is coming because of, uh, young people no longer use the mask and uh, they, they, they get along together. And so there is a kind of threat that the the going back to school in and the university in September could face some problems, you know. Are they planning to bring students back on campus on schedule as far as you know? They yeah, they expect to bring them back, but not for all the classes. It will be half online and half uh present physical classes. Has there been any backlash uh, like you've, we've seen here in the United States to some of the shelter orders or some of the uh, 
wearing mask orders, those kinds of things. Have we we've seen that? Yeah. I haven't seen much reporting on that from France. There were there were some in the early days of the pandemia when uh, they they decided the lockdown, but it was quickly. Uh, stopped quickly but the government used it as an excuse you know to make a strict lockdown kate let me ask the same question of you where are you calling in from and how are things looking there i'm calling from washington dc and uh despite the people in the white house the rest of the city is pretty obedient and and um and you know sort of informed about uh the pandemic since march we've all been social distancing and quarantining and, and uh, wearing masks indoors. And now we wear masks everywhere. And, and the, the rates in DC have been pretty, pretty good. Um, though of course they're divided along racial lines and there's a, um, a real problem right now about kids going back to school or not. Uh, if kids don't go back to school in this city, um, I think more than 33% of the kids in the school system are on, um, get food from the school. They get their three meals a day from the school. So we face this, you know, our city leaders face this really difficult decision between mass malnutrition or mass uh, infectious, you know, infectious disease, um, rates of disease. So I, I don't envy any of the people making those decisions in this city right now. And everything that's been going on since the murder of George Floyd has also been playing out in your front yard then literally too since you've been in DC can you give us a little bit of your sense of what that's been like to be in the city at that time oh yeah you know as an historian I've, I've gone down every day because it's history in the making and um, it started out a small gathering of mostly young people mostly people of color uh, and mostly with a lot of anger directed at the police and all law enforcement who are around including the, the National Guard but then after um, uh, after the big, you know, after the Bible walk and the attack, uh, more and more people started showing up uh, downtown and they skewed whiter and older. Uh, it went from hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands, you know, daily. And, it, and people started, after about 10 days, turned away from the cops and, you know, who cares where the law enforcement was? And they turned towards each other in really interesting ways and started communicating across class and, and race mm -hmm. and, um, you know, sort of people of color, uh, taking it upon themselves to spontaneously um, inform white allies what it's like to be black in America, and then and lots of song and dance, um, a real celebration. It's been just wonderful. I, I have this restored sense of optimism about where this country could go after this, and, and okay. how we can, hopefully we won't return to normal because normal has been terrible on so many levels for so many people. And hopefully we'll see this as a chance to reform and, and grow in different directions. Well, thanks for that sort of report of what you've been seeing there in Washington. I think it's a theme we'll want to come back to also. Uh, there's been so much reporting, of course, about death and disease and destruction. There's also been a lot of pro-social and a lot of um, solidarity in this time as well, which is maybe a little harder to cover. Um, to give journalists their due. I think it's something we might want to turn to in this broader context also of the of the nuclear. Kyoko, can I come to you? Um, where are you calling from and yeah. how's how's it going there pandemic wise? Um, so I'm in San Francisco uh, right now and uh, so we had a uh, kind of like lockdown really early on 
and then it was really good for a long time. But then as soon as we started opening, uh, things got pretty bad really quickly. So now um, we are being careful. Uh, but I myself uh, had probably the COVID-19, even if I tested negative in week five, because I couldn't get tested for five weeks. Um, so I wasn't around because I was basically trying to survive. Um, but a lot of things were closed. And uh, right now, their restaurants are open in a little pods or some devices that kind of like ensures distancing. But a lot of places are closed. And uh, many of my favorite places have gone out of business. You know, like mm -hmm. some of the San Francisco institutions are just gone. So it's very sad in that way. Thank you for sharing a little bit about your struggle there. And I'm glad you're doing okay. And it took how long to get a test? Uh, five weeks. But I, I think at week four, they were willing to test me, but I didn't have the strength to go get testing. And then also, I didn't want to expose another person as a driver or, you know, so it's a really difficult um, situation. And then week five, uh, actually, they didn't actually let me walk to the testing site. An ambulance came to pick me up to drive two blocks to, you know, the testing site. So it was just this like a whiplash of like, I don't have access to you know, I'll pick you up with the ambulance, full ambulance. Um, yeah, and then I tested negative. Wow. As a, a scholar who studies, an STS scholar who also studies all these things at sort of a meta level, it must have been, I mean, strange at so many levels to actually be living through this as well. Definitely. I can only imagine. Yeah, and especially, uh, I mean, touch um, with my family in Japan, where their situations are completely different and the, their understanding of what is the standard way to deal with is very different from how we do it here. So it was a very STS moment, how expertise itself is very differently, you know, like produced and interpreted in different countries. Mm -hmm. Kyoko, let me stay with you. You know, today is a, is a really important anniversary um, and it's, already to talk about it, we're talking about it in the United States perspective, it's already passed in Japan, but it's our time to talk now about it. And then we have the 75th anniversary of the United States use of atomic weapons, first time in the world, and then Nagasaki to follow three days later. Um, what is your sense of the importance of this anniversary? And what does it enable us to talk about? And what does it preclude? I'm, I'm curious to get your sense of it on this day. Right. I think uh, anniversaries definitely allow us to come together and I think collectively what it means, what we can do, what more work is necessary. But at the same time, there's this sense of like once a year event where we can forget about this the rest of the year. Uh, I was a reporter for the Japan Times. Uh, I just thought, you know, you introduced me to... Um, so we had this whole summer machinery of uh, reporting on the war, reporting on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, reporting on everything around the war 
starting July and then culminating August 15th. And then that's the time to think. Um, then the rest of the time, we kind of relax almost. So anniversaries uh, almost force us to think, and then that's a good thing, because otherwise we might not think at all. But at the same time, it's always a challenge to make this ritualistic, this moment, as opposed to something we need to actually think about outside. I wonder, you know, that story I read, they talked about the many different modifications that they're making in Hiroshima right now, and I presume in Nagasaki as well, um, because of the expected influx of, of tourists. Does that resonate with your, with your experience, the, the kind of reporting you were talking about doing? There's like a convergence on Hiroshima this time of year, and yes. then there, is that, that so the museum yes. and the city, it has to gird itself for this kind mm -hmm. of, hmm. But at the same time, that the, it's a great opportunity for, you know, many people to learn about it. So I myself, I grew up in Tokyo, and then it's very embarrassing to say, but that until 2015, I had never been to Hiroshima. Um, Actually, I met Kate at the dinner in 2015. And then at the time, I was like, oh, I think I know her work. It's that, that level of awareness. I was already studying Fukushima. Uh, because that was a shock to my system. But the, even the extending Fukushima issues to connect to Hiroshima, I started doing that because of this anniversary in 2015. So some of us naive, you know, like the people who never thought about it, it's always an annual event where, you know, these opportunities arise. So, so I'm not against it but i think it's a it's a challenge that we have to think about the, how do we extend it to go you know beyond let me um bernadette let me come to you i know you're one of the co-editors with kyoko uh and soraya who couldn't be with us today but uh, soraya budia is off the third co-editor of this um great project titled living in a nuclear world from fukushima to hiroshima i wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the volume, why we need to talk about these issues. Um, aren't nuclear issues, we think they're settled, and then we find out they're unsettled um, from time to time. Can you say a little bit about your interest in the project and what kind of questions were really important to you to tackle in the project? Yeah, the, the project, uh came uh, five years ago for the, the 17th uh, anniversary because we realized that uh, people, as Kyoko said, people forget about it, you know? I mean, uh, in the meantime, and the recent uh, opinion poll in Europe shows that, especially in France, people don't know the facts about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They don't even know, more than 30% don't know if France is a nuclear uh, country, if we yeah. have uh, nuclear weapons or not. They don't know about the nuclear test during the uh, 1950s and 60s. So there is a kind of blindness about uh, nuclear world because the nuclear world is taken for granted, you know. We live in it, it's quite normal. It's
it appears as normal. So what we wanted to do when I knocked at Kyoko's door in, at Stanford, <laughs> the idea was that I we wanted to understand how how is it possible that people consider the nuclear world as unproblematic, as quite normal. And the idea was to really understand, because there is a lot of scholarship about nuclear, but we did not want to go back to the system of deterrence and everything. We wanted to understand how the nuclear shaped the world we live in. And looking at the nuclear as a world-making technology. And we have been able, starting from this idea, to, I think, that thanks to the great number of people that we managed to gather on this project, and we were very lucky to have some of the best nuclear scholars in the US and everywhere, we have been able, I think, to identify the mechanism of this kind of banalization or trivialization of the nuclear world, of nuclear order. And uh, there are uh, many, many mechanisms. Uh, some of them includes memory, history and memory. Uh, and most of them, Hiroshima became really the, the central point because we realized in the course of these years, we realized that especially the Hiroshima Peace Museum has worked very well to uh, create the idea of uh, nuclear technology as dual-use technology. I mean that it's the, the idea is when you visit the, uh, the the peace museum in Hiroshima, it's only about nuclear weapons, and Hiroshima became really the world center for peace movement and anti-nuclear uh, uh, weapon movement. But it's only about the nuclear aspect of the the military aspect. There is not even after the renovation of the museum, and the, which reopened in 2019, we visited it last year. There is not a single word about, a word about Fukushima. It's only about the destructive power of nuclear weapons, and so the idea it conveys the idea that nuclear weapon, nuclear Technology is kind of neutral technology. It just depends on the good or bad intentions of who is going to use it. And of course, the bad intentions are always in the other camps, you know, in the other country, in the other people, and uh, the, the bad guys are the Iranian, Iranian or other people, but not we, we meaning white, male, and uh, uh, people. And so that's the idea that the uh, Hiroshima played a key role in the world making, uh, uh, the, the world uh, order of nuclear because of this great divide between the uh, military and civilian use. And Fukushima, mm -hmm. of course, 
undermine this divide because Fukushima suddenly revealed that even civilian nuclear uh, technology can be very violent depending on the circumstances. So that's why we decided to start from Fukushima to Hiroshima and to have a kind of retrospective assessment moving back to, to look at what happened and how the a number of mechanisms allowed the, to normalize and trivialize the nuclear order. That's a, a good point to bring Kate in, I think. And, and maybe, Kate, you could t talk a little bit about utopia in this context and thinking about the nuclear world, not just about the story of bombing, but also around the other ways that the nuclear creates risk and creates poison and creates disaster over over long standing. And that project you wrote about Hanford and Mac, which were disaster sites long before Chernobyl was in 86. Can you say a little bit about the that project and particularly this issue of risk toleration and maybe the challenge as a scholar of moving people's concerns away from weapons to other aspects of the nuclear? Yeah, um, you know, I started working on Plutopia because it was right after 9-11 and I was interested in the creation of the nuclear security state. And, and I felt like the people who lived in these special cities, the Soviet and American ones under these extreme security regulations, you know, their mail was watched, uh, was read and their, their um, phones were listened to and they were informants planted in the schools and the community centers. I felt like those people, now I've lost Scott. So, I'll, so anyways, um, but yeah. as I worked that story, I kept meeting people who um, told me about their health problems. They were farmers outside of um, uh, Eastern Washington and in Siberia. And they had these same list of, of symptoms that scientists don't generally recognize as um, radiation related. And I would ask the scientists and they'd say, oh, those farmers are, you know, they're just radiophobic. Um, they're, they're, they're illiterate, you know, they don't know anything about medicine, they don't know anything about science, anything that they get they attribute to what they think were their exposures. Um, and so I wrote about, you know, I sort of wrote that up and I, I couldn't find much because those were military sites. Um, but I realized that the, um, that experience of, of being contaminated with radioactive fallout was sort of universal. I mean, you know, if you look at the radiation fallout maps from nuclear testing, um, and from nuclear accidents like Fukushima and Chernobyl, you start to see how each one of these events are what I call my Chernobyl book, um, not, not really one-off events, but like we say Hiroshima and Nagasaki and we say Chernobyl, um, but they're really points of acceleration on a, on a timeline of, of disaster, really, of um, the, the spreading, the introduction and the spreading of radioactive contaminants throughout, around the globe, especially in the northern hemisphere so that's why i went on and and, and looked in the chernobyl archives because i figured this was a civilian site there might be more medical uh medical records there and environmental records talking about um, pathogen you know pathways for exposure and there i really um first starting in kiev and then moving on to minsk and belarus um, belarus and russia i really hit the jackpot in terms of archives um, about what happens to people when they're exposed um, chronically to low doses of radiation? And, and I began to understand what a banal and prosaic experience that is um, in the globe, on the globe, 
starting around 1950, unfortunately. much more to be said about all of your works and and thank you for providing this sort of background as we get started i'd like to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking today about the nuclear age and COVID 19 with kate brown and bernadette vincent vincent and yoko sato i'd like to make a turn now if we can to talk a little bit about COVID 19 and kate let me stay with you first on this um thinking a little bit about what our knowledge of the nuclear age, in terms of power production, weapons production, whatever it may be, what does that prepare us for as we think about COVID-19? What are the lessons we can draw either from one story into the other or methods of research that you might draw from the kind of nuclear history that you've done to think more effectively about what we're seeing with this global pandemic? Yeah, I mean, you know, right away, already by February of 2020, the press was saying, um, yeah, the, you know, they were looking at Chinese, the Chinese government and saying, this is China's Chernobyl, that the Chinese government, uh, uh, and then this moves to the Trump administration. The first instinct is to minimize the risks, um, tell the public, you know, that the, the biggest fear is hysteria um, and, and sort of, you know, that's a real feminization, I think, of, of the public and that everybody should just um, stay calm and, and go about their normal lives. And, and we now know that we lost a lot of time, both by the Chinese government delaying, by the American government taking so long to figure out how to test people and um, to track and trace, et cetera, that we have far more people exposed than, than should be. And, and that does look like a Chernobyl-like situation. Um, but the other thing that came to mind as this was developing is I was thinking that, um, you know, when I was in graduate school, we trained to look at history as within national borders. And, and what the pandemic teaches us is that history is in, inherently transnational. Um, and that what we have around us is not sort of empty space, but a, an atmospheric ocean of, um, of objects swimming around us. And our bodies are not hermetically sealed. And I think you really see this when you do work in, in, in radioactive spaces. Mm -hmm. Our bodies are like big nets cast its, at this, in this oceanic sea, and they pick up everything that we swim through. And that includes radioactive contaminants, um, small and large particles of, of plastics and chemical toxins and viruses and, um, and bacteria. Um, most of these viruses and bacteria are, are fine or benign, but some of them are, are virulent. Um, and so I think, you know, when I was working on this Chernobyl book, I. You know, I, I started to realize that people lie about these, you know, leaders lie, doctors lie, and so therefore archives lie. But I started to realize that maybe trees don't lie, that we can go to the environment and look for, for records of what had happened in the past that are imprinted on landscapes. Um, and, and I started to follow a couple of biologists around the Chernobyl zone, and I started to follow some foresters, and I learned a lot about how to read the landscape for contamination. Mm. 
And then I could go into those communities and, and start to talk to people and, and, and um, sync it up with medical records. And I think we'll, we'll look back on this period, you know, um, there's some uh, uh, scientists have learned to, to, to um, take protein from um, archival paper and they can find the bubonic plague you know, from medieval records on those pieces of paper that those little traces of DNA are still existent, still there as a trace. And I think we'll be able in the future to go back and, and maybe see more clearly what happened with this pandemic um, because we'll be able to find those traces of this virus. Um, and I think we, we probably will even be able to date them uh, pretty well. So um, I think that what this does is, is tells us about our, um, as human bodies, as, as cultures and societies, our deep integration with our environments and, and the same with our historical methods that we have to sort of turn from texts which are useful and, and look for other sources as well that are, are even just as useful and help us cross check our stories. Bernadette, let me, let me ask you that same question. What you draw from your thinking about the nuclear to apply to making sense of COVID-19. And I know you are a scholar who thinks um, also deeply about the way that the experience of the nuclear sort of alters human conceptions of time. And this, the temporality of COVID-19 has been very much on my mind with this as well. But I'd like to hear from you what you've been thinking about it, connecting COVID and, and the nuclear. Yeah, I think that uh, from the this perspective, it both uh, Hiroshima, Fukushima, and COVID-19 were uh, have been perceived as epoch-making events. You know that the world would never be the same after, and that uh, the kind of disruption of the course of time, the histor historical course of time, that was the first reaction. And many, many people uh, during the, the, the two months of the, the pandemia, the, the lockdown, they really uh, invited a future, a, a, a different future, an alternative future. And what we see is that the lesson that we can draw from Fukushima and from Hiroshima is that there, is, there are many, many ways to reestablish a continuity, many dispositives and devices to reestablish the continuity of the course of time and to come back to business as usual. That's the point. Mm. And we are now coming to business as usual again. So the, that's, for me, that's been the real uh, one point. Another point which struck me is that the, uh, the coronavirus, like the, the bomb, are, have global impact. They can mm -hmm. stop, you know. They, they, have, uh, they cannot be con contained. They cannot be. And everywhere you can see the traces of them. And this is what my uh, former uh, supervisor and mentor, Michel Serre, used to call world objects. They are world objects, I mean. They, they are objects with uh, global reach and which cannot really be governed. They are indomitable objects, ungovernmental, uh, governable objects, you know because they have this global reach 
And uh, so we are facing this strange situation that we are all part of the world experiment. Uh, with the nu in the nuclear age, we are all part wherever we live, in China, in New Zealand, or in the US or in France, we are part of the statistics, whether we are uh, alive, uh, sick, or uh, healthy, we are part of the statistics and we will ob be objects of research for many, many years. And it's been the same with the victims of Hiroshima and the victims of Chernobyl and, and Fukushima and everything. I mean, this, this kind of objects make everyone a research object. We are subjects and objects of research. So it's kind of the world becomes a big laboratory. And that's, for me, it's really the, the common feature of the coronavirus and the uh, and, uh, nuclear age. It's uh, amazing insights there. And to your first point, I just wanted to follow up a little bit about the, the making normal, making things normal. In the United States, the phenomena of closing and reopening the economy it, has been astounding to me and the and the rhetoric of even very early on they were reporting the number of cases and the performance of the dow jones industrial average sometimes in the same sentence sort of correlating those two very closely and and the idea that we needed to get the economy back to normal um even before in most states in the united states that first push of infection came through has been to me, um, I guess in some ways, maybe unsurprising, but also quite phenomenal. And I wonder what you, what you think about that as you talk about, think about the forces that normalize and regularize. Is that the kind of thing you mean? The, the push literally to let the economy override individual risk? Maybe there's other things at, at play there as well that you might have on your mind. Uh, I think there is a lot of uh, regulation and bureaucratic uh, aspect about that. You know, people, uh, there are many experts uh, saying that uh, you can go from uh, this uh, place to another one. But there are, uh, even for COVID, there are zones of exclusion, you know, there, there, there is the same bureaucratic um, organization of space and time. You are allowed to get out uh, at, uh, when it's not rush hour. You are allowed to go in this area and not in the, uh, the, 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 the neighbor area. So that there is the same kind of bureaucratization of our daily life uh, in, uh, in both cases. And uh, this is really, I think, we live in a kind of permanent state of disaster. To me, it's, it seems that we get used to live in a permanent uh, collapsing world. You know? And we are learning that and we are, we have to, we accept it, you know, uh, anyway, we, we do, we accept it. Kyoko, let me bring the same question to you. There's a lot on the table here and I wonder what you're thinking as you're at working by analogy from 
the nuclear to COVID-19, or, or maybe the inverse, the way that the experience of the pandemic somehow has provoked you to, to rethink some of the way we've analyzed the nuclear? I think um, one of the things that are, you know, becoming really clear from the COVID-19 is the already existing inequalities that become accentuated in times like this. And then how we treat, how we address those issues is very much about what kind of future we are making. And one of the SDS insights that I really love uh, and I find inspiring is the way we deal with science and technology expertise today is creating society. So basically making science and technology is also making society. And then in looking back how uh, you know, the world have treated, has treated people who are exposed to the bomb and the radiation, like a marginalized population, not just Japan, but you know, in many other places in the Pacific or you know, in, in other countries and the testing sites, but also near nuclear facilities. How do these, you know, do we deal with people who've survived exposure or who are still living with contaminants? And then this is the kind of things that, you know, are not built into the meta stories of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, today's, I think, counterpunch, uh, Bo Jacobs and uh, Lan Zwingenberg, who is also mm -hmm. a contributor to a volume, they talk about how the narratives, uh, you know, about the Hiroshima and the Nagasaki bombing um, in America is, they, they try to connect it to the BLM moment today and saying it's like a statue that has to be toppled because it really focused mm. on the winner's perspectives. There was no sense of the people who died and survived in that narrative. Right. And then, so when we think about that, and then I think I'm glad that at least today there's a lot of efforts of, you know, that the essential workers uh, issues and then the racial divide in the COVID, you know, deaths. And then those things are at least being debated and discussed uh, kind of quite regularly and then which we really need to keep it up. But I think about how the survivors of the bomb who have struggled, you know, they didn't just die, they've survived and struggled until today many of them died without even receiving the recognition as survivors. So how do we deal with the most vulnerable? You know, so this is always a kind of like a cornerstone of the, what, what are we as a society, people? And then those are the kind of things that resonate in thinking about both how are we gonna deal with these issues now and then how we have dealt with you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki even today. Kyoko, I've been so eager to talk with you about this, and I'm glad you read. I just want to stay with this for a second. This issue of um, memorialization is a crucial one in the context of what you were just talking about. Mm -hmm. And so frequently, and I think the Peace um, Memorial Museum in Hiroshima is a kind of classic example of this, there's a long period of time of closure that has to take place in discussion before memorialization begins. And I worry that that's going to also happen with COVID-19. You know, conversations I've had with people talking about, well, let's, can we, what would be the possibility of a real-time memorial, both for the dead, but also for survivors? Um, and, and to enact that now, because memorials are inherently about framing politics mm -hmm. and, and, frame, and deciding that there was harm. I, and I, I just want to get your take on that. And 
are we going to have to wait 15 years for a COVID-19 memorial? Right. Um, this feels like your domain, Scott. Uh, your chapter in our volume talks about no. it, right? <laughs> You do. And then, but I think this is a time, um, I think scholarly, you know, endeavors are important, um, but also uh, artistic expressions about our times. And then, you know, that there are many ways I think young people are doing a lot of different things and social media. And then, um, so those voices, different alternative voices, um, I think are ongoing, uh, very important. And I find a lot of podcasts uh, so informative because, you know, they, they pick up a lot of different voices of people on the front line, people who are just delivering food. There are many different voices we have to uh, collect um, because, you know, it's a the featuring, um, you know, that the one meta narrative is always just kind of erasing other narratives. So how do we, you know, collectively respect different narratives without losing sight of what needs to be done. So that's a challenge, but we need to actually actively talk about this. I want to remind people you're listening to COVID Calls and we're talking with Kate Brown and Kyoko Sato and Bernadette Vincent Vincent about the nuclear age and COVID-19. And just to stick with that issue, and, and I guess this gets a little bit to method of how you do this kind of work. And Bernadette, I want to ask you this question first. Um, the One of the inherent problems of this kind of work, both in the nuclear and what I see with COVID-19, is balancing a sort of global story, which then manifests itself in local places all around the world. And unfortunately that often, and I did it myself in my introduction today, because I'm using data visualizations that have become very easy to grab, um, which is to tell it as a series of national narratives. And um, that in some ways also replays some of the way that the nuclear story has been told, a, a global, phenomena that has to devolve to national narratives because, well, that's where the archives are, that's where the political struggles are. I, I don't know how to get out of that methodological tangle, but it feels like we need to confront it. Kyoko is just saying we really need to take it on. Bernadette, is, that, is there something you can comment there about how we talk about these stories as global and, and local and not just talk about the nation? Yeah, I think that's that's the major point, you know, how to 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 construct a narrative about a global phenomenon uh, when and uh, without making it the just the juxtaposition of uh, local or national narratives because you don't get the gist of it in this case. So I think the. The, what we can do, and this is what we have more or less tried to do in the volume uh, Living in a Nuclear World, is to try to capture the tensions between two or three case studies and 
to create a kind of landscape or timescape out of that, you know. Uh, looking at the, the tensions, they are not representative of the whole picture, but they give you an idea of the what what how it's possible to have this ongoing process of normalization or banalization of uh, events like nuclear weapons. And I think the it, it's it's not the best solution or the optimal solution. It's a modest attempt, but it's the pointing, focusing on relations between case studies, national studies, instead of trying to give the global picture. Kate, um, you published a book last year, which in pandemic time, I guess, feels like 10 years, maybe. Uh, Manual for Survival, a Chernobyl Guide to the Future. And I wonder if you could tell us how um, how you see that book now in light of what's what's happening right now with the pandemic. It's, I guess it's a, another version of the question I asked Kyoko. Do you see any of the conclusions you came to in, in that book in a different light? Or can you connect those two for us in, in, in some way. It's a tremendous book, and I know a lot of people are interested to hear from you about it. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I guess what, um, you know, where the pandemic has moved us, you know, towards this Black Lives Matter movement um, really resounds with what I found in the Chernobyl stories is that you know, the first, the most informed people, the people with the, the most choices, the most money, um, they were gone. They left the Chernobyl contaminated territories. Um, there was about, you know, 4 million people living in territory that was contaminated with, with um, Chernobyl radioactive isotopes uh, within the former Soviet Union. And some of the first people to leave were, were medical personnel, doctors and nurses. Uh, hospitals were staffed at 50, 60% by 1988, two years after the accident. Um, and the people who were left behind were the people who had who were tied to the land, um, who didn't have any option to move. In, in the Soviet period, farmers, uh, much like in what I understand in China today, farmers didn't uh, couldn't just pick up and buy and sell their farms and, and move somewhere else. They were sort of stapled onto their collective farms, um, sort of permanently and generationally. So those people remained, and they ate what they produced uh, locally, and they you know traded locally and. Um, and it was, uh, people started to get sicker and sicker. Um, but the people who were um, in positions of power in Kiev, Moscow, Minsk, um, they had either fled those zones or never been, hadn't been there in the first place. And they were, you know, loath to believe that there was really any problems. They wanted to have the economy to keep going, as we've been talking about. That was the first, foremost, and essential thing. That was the way, that was what the, what, um, the picture of health was about was the health of the economy foremost, and then the health of individual bodies and communities um, far, far further down on, on the um, timeline. And then the first um, sort of memorialization came almost immediately, uh, two months after the accident. Um, the you know, uh, Politburo sent out a circular that said, "This is how we're going to, you know, memorialize the accident. We're going to lionize." the firemen and the nuclear plant operators who liquidated the accident. Um, we're gonna say that the accident is contained within this you know, 30 kilometer zone, this Chernobyl zone, and that outside of it is, is safe. Um, and we're gonna um, you know, find some scapegoats. 
you know, these few plant operators who were, who were supposedly responsible for the accident. And, um, and that happened almost immediately. And I, and I think we see this, you know, in what, in what we've been seeing with the pandemic is that there's clear, you know, heroes, which were the, the emergency room and the ICU um, staff. Um, we don't see a lot about people who work in nursing homes. We don't see a lot of memorialization of people who deliver packages and deliver the food. Um, the people who are at the you know, clerks in shops. Um, uh, and we don't see, um, we're more and more tuning into, and I think this was a big takeaway from the Chernobyl story, of how people who are um, you know, the fewest choices, and that's usually related to their level of income and the level of education, are those who are most exposed. And the rest of society, professional class society, upper class society, is pretty much fine with that. You know, um, th that's okay as long as me and my kids are, 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 are safe. That was also the message of Plutopia, you know, that we can draw boundaries. We can have some spaces that are safe and some places that are sacrifice zones and some people who are sacrificed workers uh, or citizens. But, I, but more and more, I think those boundaries that we've created between risk and safety are breaking down with the pandemic and we're seeing more clearly that there's no place to hide, that everybody is potentially exposed. And I think that that's where my sense of optimism comes from, is that that universe, universalizing message um, is sinking in, even in um, polite society, educated society, even in, in halls of leadership. There was an article, I don't know if you saw it, just a few days ago, the uh, sociologist Ulrich Beck uh, there was actually a profile of him in foreign policy. I couldn't believe it. I, I was it's circulating around Twitter. Adam Tooze wrote this piece about Ulrich Beck. He said, the sociologist that can save us from the coronavirus. That was the headline. And, uh, it, but it was this moment that you all described in slightly different ways. Bernadette called it living in a permanent state of disaster. That is a kind of a consciousness. I, I mean, the way that, I mean, Beck, explicitly discusses it as a form of consciousness. And I wanted to stay with that for a second, Kate, uh, particularly these issues around how important hard numbers and metrics are in this, in this story, because governments sometimes with the help of experts, um, public and private, do formulate stories which are driven by data in which they come to hard conclusions one way or another about how many people were made sick and how many people died and how much money was paid out. And that's often, in my experience at least, that's often how closure is negotiated. Death total, sick total, payout total. But the stories you're relating, and I think the stories more generally in the volume that Kyoko and Bernadette are co-editing, there's so many undercountings, undermeasurings, and then the uncounted things like trauma, or, or as you were talking earlier, I mean, we were just talking about humans. We're not talking about non-human entities, health of forests or health of the soil or things like that. Is it possible that the pandemic can inspire that kind of thinking, new forms of measurement? You've been talking about hopefulness here a little bit. That kind of thing when I become hopeful, that's what I start to to wonder about, if we can move the conversation. Not that we shouldn't count those who died, but 
we also need many other different kinds of counts to make sense of this pandemic. Yeah, and um, you know, in interesting ways, uh, you know, people are starting to count the, the decline in CO2 emissions, um, thanks to the shutdown of the economy. The, the dolphins that have returned to the canals around Venice um, and all kinds of environmental indicators, you know, the, the fact that um, the air quality is so much better, you know, 4.5 million people a year die from uh, smog in their cities. Um, we don't yet have 4.5 million people um, dead from the coronavirus this year globally. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I try to imagine, you know, like it would be a lot easier to prevent those 4.5 million deaths than, than all the efforts that we put in to prevent coronavirus deaths. And I think that why there is a difference, why we don't just put filters on smokestacks and ban certain um, activities in cities and, and, and shift over to electric cars, that would all be re look really cheap right now compared to the you know hundreds of billions spent on battling the coronavirus. And we don't do that because we're so intent on short-term thinking. You know, uh, Kyoko gets sick, she immediately feels bad, she immediately thinks about her own mortality. Um, but if Kyoko is in San Francisco and is breathing a lot of smog and starts to cough and gradually her lungs don't function as well as they used to, and then 20, 12, 20 years from now she gets lung cancer or a COPD disorder, she doesn't relate it to the trigger of, of the bad you know, environment. And, I, and I, that's what I'm hoping that we'll have a shift in thinking of that we'll look beyond just the short-term effects. Um, um, both in terms of the environment, but also in terms of human health, and, and try to think of a larger panorama. As, as we return to what the new normal will be, I, I hope we, we think more um, carefully about something, you know, something other than just the health of the economy, you know, perpetual growth, um, and all those kind of things that have led us to this path in the first place. We're almost up on time, but I, I, I like to do this kind of like the nominating debates in the United States. So if someone is name checked, I like to give them the chance to to speak. So as we're closing out here, maybe Kyoko, would you like to react to anything Kate just said or or any final thoughts on, on this discussion today? Sure. Um, I mean, in speaking of the data you raised, like I, despite my four months of suffering, because I tested negative at one point, I'm not even counted as a COVID-19 right. person, and my life was in shambles for four months. Um, so that's the limitation of data because PCRs, you know, there are false negatives and, uh, you know, so those are the kind of things uh, we forget when we focus on data. And then the same thing is that we had a landmark ruling last week uh, about uh, survivors in Hiroshima who were exposed to black rain it's a nuclear fallout, uh, who were denied the survivor hibakusha status, which comes with relief and provisions, were uh, basically the ruling basically was in favor of those survivors. And this was like a monumentous, you know, moment where they were denied for years. And then there was this one district court ruling. So there's a movement now to, for the state not to appeal 
now, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is a new moment where they actually, in the rule name, recognize internal exposure to radiation, which, you know, traditional Japanese schools have denied for longest time. So this is all connected to how we dealt with Fukushima, how we treated Hiroshima survivors, and how we treat people in Fukushima. Those things are all connected, including the way we were relatively reckless about nuclear power plant safety issues. So all these connections, and then how you know COVID is allowing us to examine the kind of fault lines in society, and then but we also have to act and make a decisions like what do we do with it? We have an election coming up, and then this is a moment, kind of like an epoch making moment where we can let it just kind of dictate us, or we take an a you know as a as an active agent, we all each try to make a certain difference towards mm. the kind of society we want. So that's the kind of things I want to talk about with my students, uh, with friends and family. So this is not just uh, to be passive. This is a moment we have to actually actively engage with politics. Bernadette, I'd like to give you the last word on this. And I like where this conversation has ended up in this sort of very active mode. And, and you've got a book coming out. It's the right time to be weighing in on the connection between the nuclear and the world as we find it right now. What, what would you leave us with in terms of possibilities for action? Uh, I don't know because especially in, in France, you know, action on the nuclear stage is so, so tense that it's so polemical that uh, we, uh, Soraya and I, we published a paper in, uh, on the conversation today, and we received hundreds of critiques, you know, and very passionate critiques. So uh, concerning action here, I think that it's really impossible to have any action on the nuclear, but for the COVID, 19. I think that here we can, uh, and we are fighting to have more uh, public uh, participation in the, the political decision, which is very hard. But I'm really hopeful that locally, at the re uh, local level, we can reach something and have citizens participating in the decision, going back to school or not, going back to uh, public places and uh, or not, and things like that. So that's my modest mm -hmm. action today. <laughs> I appreciate that, and that will work for today. Um, and I didn't know that you'd published that piece, but we'll look for it for sure. It's in the conversation today with Soraya. So yeah, but it's in French. Sure to... It's in the French edition. Well, I, I, we can we can still seek it out, and uh, I know that the rumor about Americans we have one language, but we'll try because I think it's important to to get that to get that piece and to read it and to understand it. And I want to thank you all for for your time today. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls, and tomorrow is the 100th episode of COVID calls. We have a special episode. I'll be talking with anthropologist Kim Fortune. And I'll be talking uh, with science journalist uh, Lori Garrett, and we'll also meet the production team of COVID Calls. 
and we'll have plenty of time for questions and further discussion tomorrow. For today, I really do um, just what an honor to talk with Kate Brown and Kyoko Sato and Bernadette Vincent Vincent, especially on on this day. And uh, thank you all for everything you're doing and appreciate your time thank today. You. Thanks for coming on COVID calls. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you Stay healthy. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye.